Welcome to the Connect Church Podcast. Our mission at Connect Church is to help people find and follow Jesus. For more information on who we are and how we're doing just that, visit myconnectchurch.cc. Now, let's jump into this week's message from Pastor Blaine. Today we're going to be in Matthew chapter 1. I'll begin reading in verse 18 in just a few moments. But it's interesting to me that uh, the gospel writers uh, mention the birth of Jesus as they begin their story. Uh, Matthew is writing to uh, hope, hope to be soon believers. Uh, Mark is writing to Gentile converts. Luke is writing to would-be Greek converts. And John is writing to, to, those, to, to uh, Gentiles who have already accepted Christ. But when John tells the Christmas story, uh, all of the details that we think of of Christmas, what John, here's John's story. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now let's move on. Uh, and I think, man, there's a, I mean, there's a lot in that story, and John just kind of gets through it. Let's talk about some other things. Uh, and, and while that's in, incredibly important, and John, John's writings is in, incredibly powerful, uh, Mar, or, uh, Matthew includes many more details about the nativity story. And so we would have to ask ourselves, why does Matthew include details that John doesn't necessarily include? And it's one of the easy answers would be to say, well, because they were inspired by the Holy Spirit to write what they wrote. And of course, that is the answer, I suppose. Uh, but, but Matthew is writing to, to Jewish people that are not yet acceptors or receivers of Christ. At least not yet. That's the hope. And so Matthew has a complete, completely different audience with a different direction uh, that, he's, that he's heading. He's, he's, going to, he's going to put in some things. And so what we're going to have to do uh, in order to understand Matthew, and, and of course, you know, good, good uh, uh, biblical understanding, you, you have to consider the original uh, receivers of the text in order to be able to make right application. And so we, we're going to have to put ourselves into the... Uh, audience of Matthew, and that's going to be difficult for us because we're not Jewish. Uh, but we're going to have to, for a moment, appreciate what they would appreciate in order to understand that a little bit more clearly. Uh, so we're going to begin reading in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus took place this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. That again, that is, that is a very succinct way of telling a very complicated part of the story. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. It's easy to miss it in this translation. The ESV starts with, it took place this way. The author Matthew is, again, writing primarily to a Jewish audience. But he has just finished the first part of chapter 1, where he is tracing the royal lineage of Jesus back to King David and then on into 
Abraham, Abraham, the, the forefather of the Israelite people. This is big. This is actually huge for, for Matthew to be able to track the genealogy from Abraham and weave his way all the way down through Joseph to Jesus. It's momentous. It's exciting. It's building. It's a crescendo. Jesus' genealogy includes many of the greats. And so to identify this as the birth story of the Messiah, God's promised rescuer, the king of kings, is, is glorious. So he gets to the point of, and this is how it went. And so you get to the actual account where Matthew begins to detail out this incredible history you find something different. We're immediately confronted with an unwed pregnancy, a potential divorce, a probable psychotic hallucination of an interaction with an angel. It's not the way, I mean, it's like really, if you're a Jew and you've not heard of Jesus yet, this is a great buildup to a, wait, what? This is the, these are the details that you're including because we would lie about a lot of these details to make the story even better. Our society and our media have worked really, really hard to normalize sex outside of marriage, extramarital affairs, unplanned teen pregnancies, sexual promiscuities, and many other aberrant sexualities. In fact, things have gotten so out of hand that what was once aberrant is now being called normal. And we've even created new abominations that have created confusion and interest. And we kid ourselves by calling it experimentation. But let's be very clear. We are treading into things that will haunt our thoughts and dreams for the rest of our lives. And we think that we're going to experiment, but as you well know, Anything that is not tied to God's commands has a satanic influence. And if he can just get a tap, just a little hook, he will not let go. And we begin to carry all of these things through our life. And while we think and we even allow our children to gratify many of these things. And we say things like, well, kids will be kids or boys will be boys and we make allowances. But you, you need to understand that when we allow those things without tying them to what God has said, we are allowing them to carry shame for the rest of their lives. That's why God is very clear. If Satan, if Satan can have his way, he will force us to live with regret and shame as deeply as he can because he knows the curse of shame, the fear, the lies, the secrecy, the masks, the spiritual paralysis. And regardless of what we normalize, we do not change God's commands or expectations. I don't care how familiar or comfortable we are with breaking God's commands. They do not stop being his commands and expectations. And so the world may normalize sexual deviancy, but this does not diminish God's standard. So we should be clear from the very beginning that God had a very clear and precise plan for sexuality and deviations away from his plans and commands will never bring his blessing, but it will always bring his consequences. 
just needs to be said from time to time. But I want us to, I want us to go back 2,000 years to a much more conservative culture where your, your, your entire social and economic life is connected to your sexual purity and to your marital status. And that's where we find ourselves in Matthew chapter 1. If Mary, who most historical and biblical scholars would say she's a young woman between the ages of 12 and 14, we couldn't possibly know exactly, found to be pregnant with a child, at what point? We do not know when she knows. We only suspect that she found out immediately. But she is found to be with child. What does that mean? Well, we're not sure. How could we be sure? But Joseph finds out that she is already with child. There are two options. She and Joseph got together before they should have. And that is shameful. Even to young teenagers. Or number two, she's been with another man. And of course, that's how Joseph saw it because he knew that he had not been with her. And he could only conclude at that point what Matthew's audience would conclude, and that was that Mary was unfaithful. At this point, there's no way that he could have known, that we would know, or understood that the child was from the Holy Spirit. So what I would like for us to do for a moment is, is to take what we know about the story and kind of set it to the side and try to put yourself in Joseph's shoes, knowing what Joseph knew when he knew it. It's the only way that this story makes sense, given the reason why Matthew included it. You ever think about, and I, I don't know why this year I've thought a lot about um, Mary's family. When we get to the end of the story, we know Joseph ends up having his own, you know, epiphany and uh, entertaining angels too. But, uh, but at what point does Mary's mother and grandmother and father, when do they get the confirmation of what is happening? What is going on with this obviously holy, righteous family? This is not only profoundly shameful for Mary and for her family, but it'd be shameful for Joseph's too. Any, any man, I think, in Joseph's state would ask himself the question, am, am I not enough? You know, what is it about me? Why couldn't she wait for me? As someone is, she, you know, she's experiencing with someone else what we made choices to prevent against. And maybe these were the kind of thoughts that were running through his mind even as he wrestled with and the most heartbreaking part of this is he still loves her and he's devastated. Can you imagine the shame, the outward shame, the disappointment that he faced inwardly, the things that he was telling himself and in the voices that all of his friends are telling him? You know, guilt says, I did something bad. Shame says, I am bad. Guilt has to do with our actions. Shame has to do with our identity. I think that's why shame is so much more difficult to deal with than guilt. Shame grows exponentially. It does so in secrecy and silence and in judgment. Sin 
exposed gains public shame, but hidden sin still carries shame. And I don't want to get too specific because I don't want you to tap out just yet. But even if you got away with something, even if you got away with something, you can't not know it. So what does it cause us to do? It causes us to start leaving, leave, living in secrecy. We start building walls and barriers. Our spirituality becomes paralyzed because while we talk about prayer, we have a difficult time walking into the throne room of God knowing the truth about ourselves. We start questioning whether or not God really loves us. We start questioning if, if I am a Christian. And, I, and I, I'll just be honest with you. I was saved at a very young age, which means that I have sinned more as a Christian than I ever did before I was a Christian. And we teach our kids, you know, to get right with the Lord at an early age, which leads them to doing the same thing. Where as an adult, you grow up and you begin to think, well, if I was really a Christian, how could I ever think like that or do those things or act like that? So it just heaps this baggage on us. And while I can keep a whole lot of the information away from you, these things are what keeps us up at night. Maybe people will never find out. Maybe people will never know. Maybe... And we just what if ourselves to death. So there's three types of shame, I think, <clears throat> that I want to talk about for a moment. And that is inward shame. It's the shame that we know about. There's outward shame where there's things that I've done that you do know about. I mean, I am guilty. You know, there's, there's, there's like shameful thinking where you're hard on yourself and you can't give yourself grace. But there's also like guilt where I really, you, people do think, do do things that, People shame them. And then there's also upward shame. And it's all determined by who you trust and who you believe. I don't trust you, so I keep it inward. It eats me up pretending I'm acting. I don't trust God. I keep it inside for a while. But let me tell you what shame internalized will eventually do. It'll eventually say, well, since this is who I am, and you hear people say these things all the time, well, it's who I am. And nobody's going to tell me it's how God made me. And they begin to own it. They begin to walk in open sin. And in my lifetime, I have never seen more aggressively open sin living than now. It's because as a culture, we have internalized shame so much. We will not bring our sin to light. And it hardens our heart. And it emboldens us. So rather than turning to the Lord, we just internalize it. And you think, you wonder, why do I get so angry? Why am I so filled with anxiety? Because I care more about what you think about me than I trust the grace of God to deliver me. I'd rather walk around miserable, pretending to be something in front of you than revealing the grace of God and opening myself up to your shame. There comes a time in a Christian's life, I believe, where they would say, 
God, I am so miserable. I don't care who knows or what they think. I've just got to be right with you. Amen? You ever been to that place? I don't care what you think about me. I care what he thinks about me. And when you can walk in that freedom, it kind of takes away all the barbs of what everybody else thinks. And that's the person God can use to change the world. Shame is one thing, but the fear of shame is another. One keeps us separated from people. The other one keeps us quiet. And whatever shame you have or fear, I'm telling you today, I know it's a kind of a weird Christmas message, but God wants to breathe life into you again. Stop pretending. It's the reason Jesus came the way he did. Think about this. The God of glory descended into our shame. And the first thing he did was talk about the narrative of shame. God desires to show us peace, hope, freedom. This is what the Bible talks about, the freedom that we have in Christ. He left glory to walk in our shame. So, the first thing that I would want you to know is that there is grace. For, for whatever amount of shame you have, there is grace in greater proportion to your shame. That is the Christmas story. So I want to do a little bit of, of teaching for a moment. don't have a lot of opportunities to do this while we're together corporately, but I want us to go back again, and I want us to look at some law. The betrothal or the engagement, and, and, and please try to be patient for a little while because it will have a point. But the betrothal is a, as a promise. It was far more serious than our modern engagements today. It's, it's tragic when an engagement breaks, but it's not a crime. Uh, hearts are broken, but laws are not. But then it was much different. Betrothed meant legally pledged to be married. They were already on the record. Record Commentator R.T. France describes a betrothal. He says this, Though the couple were not yet living together, it was a binding contract entered into before witnesses which could be terminated only by death, which would lead the woman, a widow, or by divorce as if for a full marriage, exactly treated exactly the same sexual infidelity during the engagement would be the basis for divorce it was criminal about a year after the engagement the woman then normally about 13 or 14 would leave her father's house and go live with the husband after a public ceremony we would call them a wedding so when you get to Matthew chapter 1, verse 19, it reflects the legal seriousness of the Jewish betrothal. And the Jews would understand this. It calls, Mary, or it calls Joseph Mary's husband. They're not yet married. Saying that he plans to divorce her, but they're not yet married. But the seriousness of violating this betrothal is seen in the law of Moses. I don't know if you want to turn over there. You can. I'm going to read a little bit from Deuteronomy chapter 22. I'm going to read three verses. This is uh, the punishment for sexual unfaithfulness, whether it occurred before or after the wedding ceremony. 
And I want you to listen very, very clearly, okay? And just see how far we have slipped away from what God has said. If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman. So you shall purge the evil from Israel. You see that? Now we can say, well, that's the, that's the Old Testament law. True. But it does not negate God's expectations in the high standard that he sets for marital fidelity. He doesn't say mistake, indiscretion. He says purge the evil from your nation. Pretty significant. He goes on, if there is a betrothed virgin and a man meets her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out to the gate of the city and you shall stone them to death with stones. The young woman, because she did not cry for help, though she was in the city, and the man, because he violated his neighbor's wife. She is a betrothed virgin and yet is called the neighbor's wife. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. Just to be clear, if that's not clear enough, sexual, any form of sexual promiscuity outside of marriage is evil. And you can try to defend whatever excuses you want, but it cannot be defended. And so notice that the betrothed woman is called a wife in verse 24 of Deuteronomy 22, just as Matthew calls Joseph Mary's husband. And yes, it matters because the law of Moses also included, listen to this, I, I debated whether or not to talk about it, but it's the whole council, right? And it, and it does matter. But the law of Moses included a, a process for a husband who on his wedding day finds out that his wife has not been faithful in her past. It's in Deuteronomy 22, verses 13 through 21. I'm not going to read it, but discovering that unfaithfulness was so important that it says on their marriage day, if he finds out and he hates her, here's what you would do. Another writer, Theodore Mackin, says this, It was custom when the bride was neither a widow nor a divorced woman for the marriage to take place on the fourth day of the week. So most marriages 2,000 years ago took place on the fourth day of the week. Why? Because if the husband found her not to be a virgin, he could accuse her before the court, which took court on the fifth day of every week. So in short, the betrothal process in Scripture is, according to the Old Testament, if there's any kind of unfaithfulness that takes place, it is adultery. So back to Joseph. What's he going to do? His betrothed wife is pregnant. Look at verse 19. It says, Joseph was a just man. And we look at that just. What does that mean, just? Well, the word actually means righteous according to the law, meaning that whatever the law says should be done, that's the way Joseph's going to choose. That's what it means to be just. It's like, this is what the law says, that's what needs to be done and followed. Joseph's not trying to worm his way through. Uh, he is a just 
man. He's going to do what is right according to the original intent of the law. And so what is the original intent of the law? Mary should be stoned. Now, at this point, history tells us that Rome has abolished all of the death penalty laws for Jews. They are now under Roman dominion, and you can't take someone to the city gates and stone them with stones like they could 1,500 years before that. The only option that he would have would be a public divorce would be the normal course. Joseph would make a very public display and put Mary to open shame. He was authorized to put her on trial, to force an explanation, and unfortunately, she's pregnant. The result would already be decided. It was, it was a legal shaming that lasted the rest of a person's life. I just want you to understand how quickly we read through this of what the emotional turmoil these folks were actually going through. It was the righteous thing to do. Joseph is a righteous man. But we're told that he's not only just, but he was unwilling to put her to further shame. Doesn't mean that she wasn't already shamed. He wasn't going to add insult to her shame. If he chose to shame her, it would, it would put him in the best light. Her shame could redeem some of his. But his justice was also tempered with his mercy. Now, there were several kinds of divorces in the Old Testament, in the Jewish courts. Even in Jesus' day, Jesus talks a little bit about it. On one hand, there were divorces, and you have to follow this. It's a little bit detailed, but I want you to follow it as closely as we can. On the one hand, there were divorces that required specific due cause. In these limited cases, a wife was able to force her husband to provide her a grant of divorce if he was not providing for her, that's actually found in Exodus chapter 21. If a husband is not providing for, if he decides to take another wife and no longer provides for the first wife, she can say, you're not taking care of me. I want away from you. And she had to prove it, but the courts would grant her a divorce from him and she could move on. That's due cause. Much more commonly, a husband could charge his wife with adultery. And these required proof. You had to have public proof of the adultery, testimonies, witnesses, some, some forms of proof of the wrongdoing, and it led to shameful humiliation for the one that was convicted. Uh, think about, uh, I believe it's in John chapter 8, when the Pharisees bring the woman to Jesus and they throw her down and they said what? We have caught her in the act. Here is proof, public proof, public shaming, stoner. It's the same process that was going on there. Strange to me, though, that the woman was picked up and brought to Jesus' feet. She was caught in the act, but not the man. 
There was also another kind of divorce that was available, and it had become widely used. It was called an any-cause divorce. There was a, a teaching in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 24, verse 1, and the verse states that if a, if a husband can find any indecency in his wife, he could divorce her. <laughs> How? It seems to me that it would be really, really easy to, uh, to plug in any, any cause there. Any indecency. In fact, I, I won't go into a whole lot of detail on it, but there, there are a lot of his, uh, historical writers who write about some of the reasons that, I won't get into them because it wouldn't be appropriate, but there are lots of reasons why a husband would say, because of this, that, or the other. Ridiculous things, but they're indecently, uh, proving some indecency, rather. This is the divorce that Jesus is talking about in Matthew chapter 5, verse 31. It says, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. So pretty much that's the only requirement of the divorce. You can't, you can't just put a woman out. You have to give her a letter stating that she is divorced. That she seemed indecent to you. And so in such a case, a man didn't have to prove anything. He didn't have to, she didn't even have to go to court. They could just make a, 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 an appeal and the process would go, would go forward. Virtually little a wife could do to prevent that kind of divorce, but it, it resulted in a, a much less public humiliation for her. Uh, if you're going to accuse somebody of adultery, it absolves you. I mean, it makes you look a little better. She's the guilty party and everybody's going to shame her. If you do an any cause, it kind of makes it look like you're a little hard to live with too and a little nitpicky, but it doesn't expose her to as much shame. It's actually a little bit of shared shame. So Jesus directly addressed both of these kinds of divorces in Matthew chapter 19 he says this, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Jesus is saying this, any cause adultery isn't biblical. This find some indecency or some reason, it's not, it's not biblical. If any case except for sexual immorality we would say irreconcilable differences. But Jesus calls such a divorce, which would, the purpose of a divorce would be able to move forward with another marriage. Jesus says it's adultery. But he did give an exception, recognizing that based on the due cause on the grounds of sexual immorality is not adultery. So let's go back to Joseph. In, in the realm of humanity, without understanding the miraculous scene that Mary has, has already experienced, it's been, and obviously she would say, you've got, I mean, it doesn't say it, but she's, you know she has to have said, but Joseph, you have to trust me. Surely she said that. But after knowing, Joseph is still, heart's broken. He loved her so much. No escaping it. 
according to Jewish expectation and the law of Moses, Joseph must divorce Mary. But Joseph simply didn't want anyone who didn't have to know to have to know. So rather than exposing her publicly, he decides to put her away quietly. He would obey the law, but he would obey it in a way that added shame to him as well. He would share in it rather than Mary receiving it all. He, he tried to preserve as much of her reputation as he could not to shame her. So Joseph modeled grace even in shame. So this message is not really about Joseph, though. It's Joseph's hearts perfectly blended for justice and mercy. I think that that also helped him accept God's explanation, which comes next. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 20 and 21, But as Joseph considered these things, remember that word considered, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he, he will save his people from their sins. See, Joseph wanted to do the right thing, but he struggled. And I can only imagine these swirling thoughts of pain and anger and fear and frustration and shattered dreams, this sense of justice, and then all of a sudden this sense of mercy. It's exhausting. That word considered is important. It comes from a, a root word that means to boil up in anger, but then it's a compound word, which means it's softened by a decision to do what's right. Like I'm not going to be led by my emotion. That's what, that's what Joseph is doing. He's considering it, saying, I know how I feel, but I know what is right. I'm a just man, but I, I want to be merciful. I love her, and I'm mad at her. So for, for most people, it's an easy choice. But for Joseph, he's headed in a, right, in, in, in a certain direction and he is considering, connecting the dots, ruminating, perhaps even praying. And at some point, he, he, he is seeking a final answer that brings peace, but there is no peace. So he thinks himself to sleep. And it gives God the opportunity to show him grace. Can you imagine what Joseph must have experienced? Tossed and turned, worry, regret, wondering what would happen to his bride-to-be and his dreams of a family. I mean, he's a young man too. If, if he's 19, what would you think as a 19-year-old? That's what he's thinking. Here's a quick application I'm convinced that, that Joseph being a just man, you don't just wake up just. I believe that, that what, what you do up to that moment will help you in that moment. That's why Joseph's not impulsive. That's why Joseph is able to calculate and to consider and to think through because that's what he has he has called himself to do. That's the practice that he's been in is not to be impulsive, but to be, to be a holy man of God. And so when he's called upon to do the most difficult thing, it is within him to do it. 
He's not driven by his emotion, but he's driven by a desire to do what is right. The angel says, God has given this child to Mary and to you. God has chosen a name for the child, Jesus. Joseph, he will save his people from their sins. Jesus means God is salvation, or Jehovah will save. God will turn this shameful time in your life into the greatest revelation of himself that the world has ever known. I know it's shaming right now, Joseph, but God is going to work through your shame to reveal himself. If I stopped right there, I want you to hear that. That the thing that you want least in your life, which is shame, inwardly or externally, but I'm telling you that God will work through your shame, if you will give it to him, to be one of the greatest revelations of himself that the world has ever seen. But what do we do? We take our worst days and we try to keep them. That's what Christmas really is, isn't it? It isn't about God, God who, who took our shameful story and included himself in it. He took his story of glory and he gave himself to us in our greatest moment of shame. Isn't that what God still does? Isn't that the incarnation itself? God lowering himself into our shame, bearing it, giving us victory through it. And I'm telling you, for those who think there's another way, God is the only one who can turn shame around. Secrecy will only harden your heart. Doing better, I got to do better tomorrow. I'm going to do better cannot remove your shame. Forgetting it, numbing yourself, will never get rid of your shame. It only amplifies it and multiplies it. And so many people say, I've just got to get to, to where I can forgive myself. And listen, folks, you are not the judge. You are the violator, not the violated. The violator does not get to forgive. They get to say, I'm sorry. If you're trying to forgive yourself to overcome your shame, it will not work. You get to give your shame to him. And that's the only way to overcome it. Forgiving yourself won't fix it. Shame can only be remedied by identifying with Jesus in his shame and gaining his victory through it. Now, listen, again, let me remind you of something. We understand that neither Mary nor Joseph are guilty of anything shameful. Neither one of them are guilty of their feelings. But that wasn't the public impression. When you're guilty, you rightly feel shame. Sometimes you feel shame when you're not guilty, just embarrassed or disappointed, or maybe you've let somebody down, or you've not been able to keep your word, or you've not become what you thought you were going to, or somebody else thought you were going to. But regardless, shame forces us into isolation, brokenness, and secrecy. And Christmas is all about Jesus coming into our shame opening us up and making a way back to the Father. In our shame is where we want to avoid God, though. 
But that's exactly where we need him. And I'm telling you, I believe that you can be a follower of Jesus and live in shame. I think you can do both of those things. I think that you can be a Christian and live in shame. But I think you will neutralize his fullest revelation of himself and you will negate the grace of God of ministry that he gives for you. I feel like, you know, and I grew up, well, I I don't want to go too far into this, but I feel like we're beginning to, to normalize shame in our, in our culture. Pe- people are beginning just to accept it as a part of life. Uh, and and we, when we begin to normalize it, we'll think it's okay. And then it's something we begin to just carry with us. And then we, we teach our kids to live in secrecy as well and not necessarily to be honest or to present their best view or their best case of themselves. But once you do, you're going to find something to do with it. You're going to internalize it. You're going to create walls. You're going to close yourself off or you're going to externalize it and you're going to become emboldened in more sin. And as I said earlier, shame is tied to identity. So how you see yourself or how others see you. If you don't like how you see yourself, you're going to walk around in shame. If you, if you don't like the way others see you, you're going to walk around in shame. Eventually, if you, don't have, if you don't have the right identity, other people are going to treat you the way you treat yourself. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Or if you're not careful, you'll begin to think about yourself the way everybody else thinks about you. It's called a low self-esteem. We're really hyping our kids up to have a higher self-esteem. right? Think of yourself highly. Think of yourself highly. But without Jesus, it doesn't work. It only adds more and more shame. I think when we come to the Lord in obedience, you're going to give him your shame or you're going to give him an act. Matthew chapter 1 verse 22. Look at it there with me. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. This is in fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Uh, I paraphrase, but God will be birthed into our world, humbly wrapped in swaddling clothes, placed in a feeding stall for animals, It's not that God roots for us from the grandstand of heaven, but God steps into our world. He embraced nakedness, weakness, hunger, thirst, fear, uh, uh, or anxiety, or uh, veiled his deity so that he could understand those emotions from us, made himself vulnerable. So then one day he could understand it enough that he could do it all over again as he embraces the shame of the cross, becoming naked and weak and hungry and thirsty and crying and vulnerable so that he could pay the penalty for our sin and shame and grant us eternal life. God himself embraces the shame so that you don't have to hold on to it. 
For Joseph to take Mary as his wife guarantees a lifetime of worldly shame. He and Mary and their child Jesus are going to be a social and economic outcasts. Joseph has a choice. Will he walk with God, enduring that shame momentarily, exposing himself to the, whatever the thoughts of the world may be of him so that he could benefit from God's grace? Or will he forfeit God's grace so that the world can think more highly of him? Verse 24, when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife. But he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Joseph wasn't even allowed to name the child. He has nothing but faith and obedience. And over his lifetime, he obeys every time. The angel of the Lord appears to Joseph two more times. Once to warn, warn him to flee Herod to Egypt. Another time, Herod has died and it was safe to return home. But even though Joseph seemed to always honor God, they were, if you look at Matthew chapter 13, Jesus is returning. He teaches in his hometown of Nazareth. And, and he's looked down by others. The world never understood. Look at verse 54, I believe. It says, Coming to his hometown, Jesus began teaching the people in their synagogue, and they were amazed. Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers, they ask? They see it. They hear it with their own eyes. But then they said, Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? And they took offense at him. This is Nazareth. This is home. Archaeology has just recently found that Nazareth probably had somewhere around a thousand inhabitants in the first century. It wasn't large. People knew each other. These people who grew up with Jesus and Joseph and Mary said, well, what's his name? The, the carpenter's son. And isn't his mom's name uh, Mary? And they were offended or ridiculed. I mean, all the things that Jesus has done, right back down to he was married, he was born out of wedlock. His ma, I know that story. I don't know the story of him walking on water. I don't know the story of fill-in miracle here. But I know the story of their shame. But it was worth it. The world may have shamed them. But they didn't walk in shame. They walked in grace. Shame is attached to identity. And when you drop yours for his, you will find, and only then will you find victory. To the world, it's, a shame, it's shameful to walk in Jesus' identity like Mary and Joseph. Otherwise, you have to walk in it on your own. And you can hide many of your shameful thoughts and your shameful acts from the world, but you cannot e escape the personal shame of the truth that becomes suffocating. I don't want to preach too much on this, but it's one of the reasons why we have an increasingly distaste or inability to sit in quiet. No, but very few can live in quiet. 
Because we need something back there that distracts us from the suffocating reminders of shame. This is culminated into Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith. We sung a song earlier today said that he did not despise the cross. He didn't despise the cross. He endured the cross, despising the shame. He despised the shame of it. It means that it's, a, it's another compound word, but the word despising the shame is, it means that it was repugnant to him. And all the shame of the world rushed to Jesus while he was on the cross. And in that moment, the world was guilty. It would have been just for Jesus to call all the angels to release him from the brokenness of the cross and to divorce us by public shaming. And to say, you're not worth the shame that I am enduring. And, but Jesus despised the shame. He didn't put us away that way. He took us on. And the betrothed continued to go forward the relationship. And he chose rather to share shame with us. Ultimately, Jesus is a better Joseph. Because Jesus didn't only share our shame, he is victorious over our shame. And he bore it for us so that we could walk in grace. That is the Christmas story. Let's pray together. This morning, I don't want anybody to feel, I'm not trying to get you to tell anybody else your darkest days. That's not the point. I don't want anybody to feel like they're being, we're not going to have an open mic night. But I do want us to take a contemplative few moments and think about the parts of ourselves that we keep removed the part the the parts there was a, a song that my grandmother a million and a half years ago used to she was her favorite song is uh, there's a place in your heart that even I don't go got some things in there I don't want nobody to know but he's given me the key tears of love on his face he doesn't want us to live in disgrace but his grace and this morning I want this message not this sermon the message of hope for those who are pretending those who are walking around in shame those who are struggling with their identity those who don't know who they are those who live in self-doubt those who walk around paralyzed they don't trust people they keep trying to handle those emotions on their own and I'm telling you that you're going to spend the rest of your life trying to deal with all of that on your own and it will never work there's only one way 
And that is to trust Jesus with your sin, with your sinfulness, and for you to despise the shame. There's no point in you despising the shame that Jesus has already despised. Walk in freedom. Ask him, Lord, reveal to me the parts of my heart that I've grown so hard, the parts of me that's calloused over, the parts of me that don't care anymore and give me a soft heart, Lord, that I may be able to walk in grace, that I may be one of the revelations of yourself in this world, that despite who I am, despite what I've done, Listen, this isn't about you coming down here and telling somebody about it. This is about you being honest with the Lord and saying, I know who I am, but I know what you've promised. Thank you for giving me the freedom to walk in wholeness and not really care what the rest of the world thinks. There was a a time in my life that I battled private sin private to only myself and, and very few. And I remember, I remember in tears asking the Lord not to make it public because I did not want it to be my platform. I don't want it to be something that I have to be reminded of all those times. Lord, I don't want people, when they think of me, they think of this. Lord, please. But the weight became so grueling, so suffocating, so life-taking that it's like, Lord, I really don't care. I just need a relief that only you can give. Do whatever you will. Just give me freedom in Christ. I'm going to ask you to stand with me. We're going to pray. I know, and I, and I don't know, but I, I'm certain that there are so many of us that are, that are locked up. Locked up in a, if people only knew mindset. Every person in here has some form of, if people only knew. Just let the Lord know. If God is for us, who could be against us? Let's take just a moment and let's pray privately. If you need to come to the altar, again, we don't, I mean, if you want, if you want to share something privately, you can, but today I want us to, I want the word to become flesh and dwell among you. Father, I pray that you'd use this message, this message of hope. I pray that you'd restore us, even in areas we don't know are broken still. We've made a declaration to follow you. Many of us have. But there's so much much residue that comes with that that we don't really, we just overlook. So Lord, I pray that you would just set us free today. Help us to trust you in every area. Thank you that you despised the shame 
but for the joy that was set before you. So Lord, may we share in that joy because you shared in our shame. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you need help finding or taking your next step, send us a message at hello at myconnectchurch.cc.